0: Well, good morning. It's a, it really is a joy to gather together again this morning, having been together with so many of you last night. and uh, It really is a, just a sweet fellowship to join together with believers in um, time like we had last night in just fellowship and laughter and song, and then to come together this morning and join together in worship and proclaiming the name of our Lord together and singing these Christmas hymns. You can go ahead and open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 11. As we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, picking up here in um, the end of chapter 11, you know, it seems like there is little today that persons can agree on. You know, maybe it's always been this way to some extent, and it's just that access to television, radio, podcasts, social media have maybe just revealed what's always existed. And though I doubt that, I, I do think that these mediums have exacerbated the problem where we are more contentious, more at odds with one another than ever before. These things have apparently elevated differences while deepening division. And yet, there is a subject that if I were to poll any major city of any people group anywhere in the world, I believe I could get near, if not 100%, consensus. What's that subject? It's how hard life is and how exhausting it seems. Persons feel this difficulty and they feel that hardship differently. For some, pain and difficulty is related to hunger, for others, it's physical, for some, it's persecution. For others, it's emotional. For some of you here, it's your homework. The experiences are different, but the essence is the same. We are exhausted, we are tired, and we are worn out. And there's a root cause for this malady. And as we're going to learn this morning, as we're going to observe together this morning, there is an antidote and an ultimate cure to it. Let's read together from Matthew chapter 11 as we observe Jesus' words of hope to a tired and exhausted world that is worn down by sin. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Father wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me that I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray as we begin our study of these verses this morning. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had together this morning, lifting the name of Christ, singing and rejoicing in this Christmas season. Lord, as we look at these words, as we are reminded of the purpose for which he came to this earth, I pray that we would attune our ears to hear that we would find the comfort and grace and mercy that is at the cross, that we would delight in it, that we would delight in Christ this morning as we see him revealed, as we see his character revealed to us, and that we would go forth from here proclaiming that Christ, in your name, amen. If I were to use the word heavy, I'm relatively certain that a feather is not what comes to mind. That would be a paradox. This morning we're introduced to a wonderful paradox, a seemingly self-contradicting statement, something that would normally not lead to another. And I say we're introduced to a paradox. Really, there are, in actuality, several in uh, this short conclusion to chapter 11 here. The ruler and creator of heaven and earth is described as gentle and humble. Likewise, his yoke, normally associated with hard labor, provides rest. But the paradox is not in there. Those who are wise in understanding cannot comprehend the kingdom of God, while those who are infants in understanding receive revelation. You may remember as we began to look at this chapter here in chapter 11, it's part of a larger section that began at the beginning of chapter 11 that runs through chapter 16. And we said throughout this section, we are going to be introduced to the person and nature of Jesus Christ. There is a lot to learn about Christ from these verses and these chapters that are in front of us. And this morning is no different as we learn something particularly important about the nature of Jesus Christ. Verse 25 opens on the heels of a sad and ominous message that we looked at last week on those who rejected Christ. As one commentator summarizes, "...the Messiah himself has come. And although some have responded to his call and become disciples, many have turned away from both his ministry and that of John." the voice who prepared the way. So questions naturally arise. Has something gone wrong? Who's in charge here? Why is God not at work? Well, Jesus answers these questions and these charges. God is at work. The Father is in charge. Unrepentant sinners have not thwarted His plans. And so... Jesus enters in with this prayer to the Father at that time. At that time when he experienced this rejection. At that time when these questions would have been creeping in. At that time when the rejection was beginning to be felt. Verses 25 and 26 are a prayer that is offered by the Son to the Father. And while it's certainly possible that the Spirit provided Matthew with insight into a personal prayer of Jesus and with the Father, it's much more likely, considering the context and what follows, that this prayer of praise was offered in the hearing of the disciples and others. That word to praise or confess, which opens up this prayer, whenever it's used with respect to God, it means to acknowledge who God is, the rightness of his ways, the excellence of his character. All of these are the connotations of the passages where you see that praise being given to the Father. And notice how Jesus does that. He does all of these things, but notice how he does it. First, Jesus uses the expression, Lord of heaven and earth. This is not a common expression. At least not within the prayers and certainly not within Matthew. It's not an uncommon expression in the sense that it's never heard of. But it's not one that was regularly used. We're familiar with the phrase heaven and earth, but this Lord of heaven and earth is somewhat unique and it's purposeful. It orients the hearer to creation and the creator. And this becomes particularly important for what follows as we are taken back to the early chapters of Genesis and what Jesus is going to unfold in the remaining verses. But it also immediately orients our minds to praise. You immediately think of the psalmist and so many of the psalms that extol the creator of the heavens and the earth. But what is it specifically that Jesus praises God for? He praises him for the rejection he has experienced, at least in part. That in and of itself is another paradox. But Jesus is recognizing here the sovereignty of God and the sovereign plan of God that cannot be thwarted by the wisdom of this world. In fact, as we will quickly learn, the wisdom of this world and its arrogance and self-sufficiency is damning and self-condemning. But what are these things? The, The these things that have been hidden. Namely, the way into the kingdom of God, which comprises the Beatitudes, our spiritual poverty, and our neediness for Christ. And that becomes clearer as we go on, but notice what we learn now about these two groups of persons concerning these things. Here we see the wise and understanding, and and there's somewhat of a parallel, these wise and understanding to the infants match up very well with a parallel we've already seen in chapter 9, verse 13, where he talks about righteous and sinners. And Jesus said, I did not come to save the righteous, I came to save the sinner. Now, what did he mean there? Did he mean these are actually righteous persons? Well, if you remember back to our study of those verses, it's no, it's those who have declared themselves to be righteous. And so, to hear, Jesus did not come to those It is saying, who think by their own estimation that they are wise and understanding. Those who believe they are self-sufficient, without need of a savior, but rather to those who make no such claims, but rather demonstrate the neediness of an infant. Wise and understanding are those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise. It's the best of human insight, which relies only on its own sources and its own ingenuity. It is a dangerous and spiritually deadly thing to consider oneself wise and self-sufficient. As Paul reminds the believers in Corinth. In fact, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writing to the Corinthians in verse 26. Says, For consider your calling, brethren, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the best things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Skip down to verse 6 of chapter 2. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Him, for to us God has revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. We see here the wisdom of God which confounds the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of God which is not like the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of God which requires revelation from God to understand. And Jesus identifies the group who received this revelation here and By contrast, God has revealed these things not to those who think themselves wise and self-sufficient and all-knowing. He's revealed these things to, as the text says, infants. Now, this is not a reference to literal infants. It's a word picture. It's figurative language. But then we need to ask, why use the term infants? It's because this is the opposite of the wise, intelligent, self-sufficient, proud, and arrogant. An infant has no pride, no claim to self-sufficiency, and no arrogance. They are the perfect opposite to the proud, self-sufficient one. An infant is the perfect picture of the poor in spirit and repentant who recognize their spiritual impoverishment and need, both for salvation and for continued spiritual life. An infant is the perfect picture of neediness, of dependency, However, it is important to note that no one is capable of recognizing their poverty and their infancy on their own. That's what Jesus says here. This is something that God reveals to them. It's the sovereign work of God to reveal these things leading to repentance and a life of dependency and faith in Christ. This dependency and nearness to Christ is why Scripture is filled with word pictures of abiding in the vine of being fed and nourished from the root which is in Christ. You know, we really see this arrogance and this self-sufficiency everywhere in the world around us. Sadly, we even see it in the church at times. We might even call it within the church incipient atheism. Because while on the one hand, persons proclaim their need for God, they act as if they do not. And if we're really honest with ourselves, rather than saying them, we'd say we. If we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we act this way far too often. Proclaiming fidelity and faithfulness to Christ while acting presumptuously. And it doesn't even mean that I'm engaged in some gross sin, some gross immorality. It is solely the fact that I do not demonstrate a need and a reliance upon Christ. I don't study the Bible, I don't pray, I don't serve, I don't prioritize time with the body of Christ. And so I begin to demonstrate that self-reliance. The wise and understanding of Jesus' age and all ages reject the teaching of Christ, scoffing and confident in their own wisdom, their own self-sufficiency. By contrast, the children of God long to be taught. They long to learn the things of Christ. They long to emulate Christ. And so let's ask, how do I know if I have self sufficiency or if I'm acting in this way? How do I know if I'm acting arrogantly and presumptuously toward God? Well, ask yourself this when faced with perplexing decisions or those requiring careful thought, how frequently do you pray and ask the Lord for assistance and guidance? What is your first response? How frequently do you ponder, how will this decision affect or hinder my ability to minister and serve those around me? How will this affect my ability to edify the body of Christ? Similarly, ask yourself, do you long to learn about Christ? Do you study His Word with a desire to learn about Christ, to learn how to please Him? Do you read and listen to books of theology, that is, the study of God, Another way in which we demonstrate practical atheism is in just simply failing to pray. Are you praying enough? Well, what's enough? Well, at a foundation, we should be praying each and every day for the day. Beginning each day, either the night before or that morning in prayer, just as Jesus instructed and provided a pattern and example for us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a manifestation of belief in Christ. To begin each day in prayer, in dependence. And then there's going to be specific prayers that govern and construct each day as you go through it. As you encounter new troubles, new problems, new experiences that are put before you. But why does God care if we pray? How does this show reliance? Because it draws us closer to Him. It's a manifestation of Our belief and our trust in Christ. Belief is trust. The words can often be used synonymously. It is reliance. Prayer is a tangible demonstration that one is in Christ because they demonstrate their dependence on Christ. It's also protection. Protection for us and protection for the church. Tozer noted, the church that is not jealously protected by mighty intercession, that is prayer, and sacrificial labors will before long become the abode of every evil bird and the hiding place for unsuspected corruption. The creeping wilderness will soon take over the church that trusts in its own strength and forgets to watch and pray. The conclusion to Jesus' prayer here to the Father in verse 25 is found in verse 26, along with a summary to the listening crowd in verse 27. And we see in verse 26 that the blindness of those who declare themselves to be wise and self-sufficient was part of the Father's good plan and thus good in His sight, that is to not reveal them. We see the irony here, the irony that their blindness is good in His sight. The sovereignty of God is on full display in this verse. As we see the revelation of one's spiritual neediness leading to salvation is wholly an act of God. We will see the heart of God revealed through Christ in verse 28 in the all language there. But first, we need to recognize the sovereignty of God to reveal. This revelation is declared well pleasing. This is again creation language. When God looked at what he had made and declared, it is good. All that God does is, in fact, is good, but Jesus' reason for using this this specific declaration here that it is well-pleasing, that it is good in his sight, echoing back to creation and that creation language introduced by the Lord of heaven and earth is very purposeful. Not only provides a fitting and right conclusion to the revelation of God, but it ensures that we see the scarlet thread of redemption running throughout all of Scripture that is being tugged at in these verses, a thread that continually points to Christ implicitly and explicitly ever since the creation and fall of man. In verse 27, we're reintroduced to the exclusivity of Christ as Jesus turns from addressing God to addressing the crowds. Jesus is actively working to save and to redeem, but it's only done where? Through Christ who offers rest and hope in verses 28 through 30. And that's really a fitting conclusion to the creation illusion of verses 25 and 26. What better place for God to declare it is good than over his redemption and new creation of believers? Just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. So our attention is, again, directed to Christ. Jesus, having concluded his prayer and his summary evaluation of in verse 27, turns to address those who have gathered around him. Some may be thinking, well, how do I know if I've had that revelation? Some have gathered to learn. Some have gathered merely to be entertained. But surely all are asking at this point, how do I know if I've had it revealed to me? And so what does he say? He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Here we see a genuine universal call, the heart of Christ revealing the heart of God that all would be saved. This is not the only place in scripture that we see this. God does not wish for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The heart of Christ revealing the heart of God is that all would be saved. And this is the mystery, as one commentator puts it, of the saving paradox of God who alone brings some people to faith through the message that all are invited to believe. Only some are saved in the midst of a message to all. He goes on to say, let not anyone conjecture from this verse that the Son only wants some to be saved through the knowledge of the Father. The Son's invitation in these verses rings out a universal appeal. All who are laboring and heavily burdened, come to me. When we go out and preach the gospel, we don't pick and choose those who we think will respond to the gospel. We preach, come to Christ to all. This is the mystery of the heart of God expressed in His decreed will compared to His prescribed will which works all things for His glory. The sad reality of sin's effect is that man chooses over and over again to reject God. Every time the call is offered, man will reject God. But for God. Revealing Himself. Revealing Christ. So God must sovereignly reveal Himself through the sun, and as the scales fall off, a new creation is born. And whom does Jesus call? How does He describe them? Everyone who is weary. Weary here is a term often associated with exhaustion to the point of giving up. It's like the person in a shipwreck who has been treading water for days to the point of exhaustion where they have nothing left. And that is Horrible as it may seem, to succumb is better than treading another moment. It's the outworking of the toil resulting from sin entering the world, causing man to work by the sweat of his brow and struggle to produce anything good from this world, anything a sustenance. And we want to be careful not to restrict this term and this call to any one example. However, we certainly should mention, in light of the context, in light of whom Jesus' initial audience was, that this heavy laden would certainly include the burden that these Jews felt. These Jews who had been burdened with 613 and more commands of the Second Temple Judaism that made up the so-called Torah or law which was an expansion of the oral and written commandments beyond the Torah or the law of Moses found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It was taking all of those things, providing man's interpretation and a whole bunch of additional laws and instructions. In an indictment against the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 2-4, through four, we'll get to in eight or nine years. Not really. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger." Peter likewise noted noted that these requirements of the scribes and Pharisees was a yoke, that heavy burden laid on the shoulders in Acts 15.10, when he says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. While the burdens are certainly not less than those of the scribes and Pharisees, this statement is also not limited just to The Jews. Those living under the onerous commands of Judaism. This statement also applies to all who live under the weight of sin. All who have tried to do good. All those who have tried to find joy in this life apart from Christ. Jew and Gentile alike who find life exhausting and wearisome. All who, like Solomon and Ecclesiastes, recognizes the frustrating enigma of life. How hard and wearisome it is to try and find purpose and meaning to life apart from God. How many places sinful humankind looks, how much effort they put forth into producing lasting meaning that turns to dust over time. Man is constantly laboring to grasp the wind. And so Jesus says, I will give you rest. This short statement of comfort and hope would have struck these hearers particularly, those who are familiar with the Old Testament, like a bolt of lightning lighting up the sky, turning darkness today. Here's why. With these words, Jesus has reached back into antiquity, to the promises given from Genesis onward to fulfill the hope of rest. Rest that permeates the Old Testament, the rest and the hope that everyone longed for. Just before a description of the new covenant, God says in Jeremiah 31:25, For I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40, 29 through 31, saying, He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. We're going to return to this in just a moment. To this important topic of rest in the Old Testament. But first note what Jesus says in verse 29. Learn. Learn what? Learn that I am or learn about me that I am gentle and humble in heart so that you will have rest for your weary souls. There are many who claim to want to learn Christ. In fact, if you're here this morning, you probably are at least claiming that you want to learn about Christ. But do you realize how few there are who learn Him in this way? Persons too often focus on Jesus' rebukes to the Pharisees, His harsh language, His condemnation his scathing remarks against the scribes. And as a result, their ministry is marked, whether professional ministry or whether it's just our ministry to one another, is marked by a firmness that was never intended for the sheep, but was intended for the wolves. They inadvertently become the very thing they hate by creating a new set of rules and requirements that burden believers unnecessarily and harmfully. That's not to say that works are unnecessary. Far from it. Works and obedience are absolutely necessary, but it's the why, why are they necessary that becomes so important, and that is that razor-thin line that distinguishes the love of Christ from legalism. It's because, as Sinclair Ferguson notes, the works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in, they are intended to teach us about Christ. If our goal in obedience is to learn about Christ, then we won't slide into that legalism, We won't feel the weight of a burden. To reject the commandments of Christ is to scoff at wisdom. It's to scoff at Christ himself. We do need to engage in good deeds. Paul writes to Titus, warns Titus in chapter 1, verse 16, that it is possible to profess Christ with your words, but deny him with your works and your deeds. But when works and obedience become an end unto themselves, we've created a system and a yoke that looks more like that of the scribes and Pharisees than Jesus. And so we must learn Jesus as Jesus calls us to learn him. That he is gentle and lowly of heart. We must learn what it means when Matthew says in the very next chapter, a battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not quench. And we need to learn to emulate that in our lives and our ministries as you study your bibles ask what do i learn about the gentleness and the humility of christ and then ask how do i demonstrate that in my life now what of this yoke and this rest there were two types of yokes that would have been familiar to people at the time of christ there's the yoke that you're probably most familiar with, and you think of a yoke, a yoke on oxen or cattle that you would hook usually more than one animal to it. You'd link them together so they would pull together and work toward the same purpose. The other, though, was a human yoke that was given to make work easier, put over the shoulders, and you would carry heavier loads over the shoulders rather than just the weight of the, your arms. Carry much heavier loads, much greater distances. It was done to allow work to be done a little bit easier and more efficiently. As one commentator notes, however appealing the idea of being in double harness with Jesus may be, that is not the point. He's offering those who find their loads too too hard to carry a new yoke, which far from adding to their oppression will ease their burden and paradoxically will bring not further toil but rest. He's not talking about the yoke of oxen. He's talking about this human yoke. And every time yoke is used, we also see the concept of servitude and submission. To be yoked is to be put in service. Or to serve others. So it's fitting that Paul and the apostles pick up on the language of slave to describe their relation to Christ throughout the New Testament. It's being one in service to Christ. And yet Jesus is a master unlike any other. He iterates. The one who takes this yoke is... My burden is light and the yoke is easy. See, Jesus is not offering the yoke of the law, but neither is he offering freedom from all constraints. He has a yoke. Jesus is offering the yoke of discipleship, the yoke that will keep one on the narrow path and bring one to the wicked gate, the narrow door. This fulfills the promise of Jeremiah pointing to the new covenant where he says in Jeremiah 6, 16, Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. The yoke does not mean that life is without pain or without trials. Jesus makes that clear throughout this chapter and the preceding verses. But the yoke of Jesus provides comfort and hope. And what it does is it causes one to lift their eyes from the toil of the ground to the horizon of eternity. And that returns us to the ancient and the theologically significant term, rest. The hope of rest is the most ancient expression of the promise of Christ that exists. This rest finds echoes throughout Scripture as it winds its way back to the Garden of Eden. This is what Jeremiah meant when he described those ancient paths. This is the rest that was promised through Joshua if Israel would obey when they entered the land. It's the rest that God promised to Moses and the people of Israel if they continue to walk in obedience. In Exodus thirty-three fourteen, where he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. It's the rest Job describes. Early on when encountering the pain that was brought upon him. And Adam and Eve, we see the hope of rest implicit in the one who will crush the head of the serpent and bring an end to the curse. Rest is the relief from the toil, the relief from the curse. To see how firmly entrenched this hope of rest was, turn all the way back to Genesis 5. Genesis 5, in the middle there, we're going to jump in at 529, concludes a section of genealogies from Adam leading up to Noah. This would have been at least a thousand years after the fall of Adam and Eve, likely a good bit longer, and Noah is born to Lamech. At his birth, Lamech named his son Noah. That that name itself is significant. You may not have known this, but you already know a little Hebrew. Noah, or noach, means rest. It means comfort. It's the term, that theologically significant term for rest that we find throughout Scripture. And what do we read? I'll back up to verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his son Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. You see that, right? Noah's name was rest. Sometimes translated as comfort. This was the entrenched expectation going back to Adam. It was the longing of every person from Adam onward that has ever lived, including after Noah, including after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, the prophets, the apostles, the disciples, the New Testament church, all the way to present day. It's so the longing of every person, believer and unbeliever. There's not a person alive today who longs for life to be harder, For life to be more difficult, for life to be more painful, more disappointing, more emotionally draining, filled with more tears, sweat, and blood. Every human that has ever lived has longed for rest. This is the hope and promise of peace that the angels proclaimed at the birth of Christ. This is why John leapt in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, when Mary met her after learning that the Messiah would be born of her. Rest is found in Christ, nowhere else. All of their efforts are futility and result in frustration. Here, too, we see the culmination of the Sabbath rest. This concept, the hope, the anticipation of eternal rest from sin was preserved in Israel's constituting as a nation. Each Sabbath rest was a reminder of their current toil and the eschatological, that future hope, that future rest for which they longed that could only be found in the Messiah, that is Christ. But once Christ came, this Sabbath rest found its fulfillment. We now have a better rest, a better Sabbath in Christ. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.9, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, that is Christ, so that no one will fall through through following the same example of disobedience. That Sabbath rest, Christ is that Sabbath rest. We'll see this clarified even further as we look at this next section of Matthew in the coming weeks where Jesus enters into a discussion of the purpose of the Sabbath and the Sabbath rest with the Pharisees. see, the Sabbath was always intended to be temporary relief from toil and easing the painful existence under the curse of sin. But it was also intended to always stand as a reminder to look forward to the one in whom the permanent Sabbath rest would be found and through whom eternal rest would come. Taking on the yoke of Jesus lightens the burdens of life and eternity. It provides meaning to the enigmatic. It creates peace where frenzy reigns. Where the world is hurried, frantic, and on the edge, we can find rest. As one commentator notes, because of who Jesus is, the burden of discipleship becomes light indeed. Indeed. As I've already said once before, the yoke of Jesus provides comfort and hope that raises our eyes from the toil of this earth to the horizon of eternity. It provides a rest that cannot be found in vacation, can't be found in a good night's sleep. It provides rest from the burden of sin in this life. It provides confidence in the future rest where there are no more tears and there are no more pain. Now we cannot conclude a sermon like this, a study like this, without reiterating the call of Christ. If you're here this morning longing for rest from the painful toil of this world, then the, the call is come. Come. There is an answer. You can experience a taste of that rest right now. With a hope that makes the sufferings of this present world nothing to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Christ will provide meaning to this life that makes it possible, in fact, relatively easy to endure with joy this life. For those who have experienced salvation, remember this morning your neediness. Praise the Lord that he has revealed to you your neediness. And live each day in dependence upon Christ, not in practical atheism. Draw near to Christ. Through prayer, through study of Scripture, through obedience and walking in the works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And then rest. Rest in the promises of God. Turn to the Lord in your anxiety, in your busyness, in your fears, in your sadness, in your discouragement, and come and rest. It's a beautiful new Christmas hymn called, Come All You Unfaithful. I encourage you to listen to it this week if you've never heard it before. Or maybe if you had, listen to it again. But I want to read just a few lines as we close. It goes, oh come all you unfaithful. Come weak and unstable. Come and know you are not alone. Come barren and waiting ones. Weary of praying, come and see what your God has done. Christ is born for you. O come, bitter and broken, come with fears unspoken, come and taste of his perfect love. O come, guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the precious reminder we are given this morning of rest. Thank you for Christ, for what he teaches us. May we learn that lesson well. And he's gentle and humble of heart. And may we emulate that. May we learn to practice that in our lives and in our relationships so that more would come to know this rest through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So.